One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. The Patriots at the Jets kick off Sunday, September 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 43. Game Overview by Pappy324. New England will feel a lot of pressure to win this game. The Jets looked lost on offense in Week 1. Damian Harris offers cheap touches if he isn't in the doghouse. The best play from this game is likely a defense. How New England will try to win. The Patriots are coming off a tough one-point loss against an opponent they've consistently beaten for the better part of the past two decades. Tom Brady is 23-12 against Miami in his career. Does it feel to anyone else like the Patriots have the most pressure of any team entering Week 2? After a lackluster rebuilding year, followed by a frantic offseason of spending, the Patriots faithful fully expect a 2021 return to glory. An 0-2 start would not only put the Patriots up against stiff odds historically to make the playoffs, but it would also ignite a narrative that the Patriot way was really just the Brady way. Fortunately for the Pats, they draw a lackluster Jets team that is starting a rookie QB in his second career game. The Pats gave us a glimpse of how they want to attack in Week 1, slam Damian Harris into the opposing front seven, and let their elite offensive line control the game. This style makes sense given that the Pats are starting a rookie QB. Harris got 23 carries week one, and they were continuing to ride him until a costly fumble lost them the game late in the fourth quarter. We can only assume that Bill Belichick will curse Harris's family line for generations over such an offense. But given the other options in the backfield, Bill is likely to keep featuring Harris. The passing game is the path of least resistance against a Jets secondary that leaves a lot to be desired. However, the Pats are also starting a rookie QB in his second game, and if they can control the game on defense, they are likely to opt for a ground-and-pound approach. When they do take to the air, the receiving work is spread out, with eight different players catching a pass in Week 1, and no one earning double-digit targets. Jacoby Myers was the most involved with nine looks, but only turned them into six receptions for 44 yards. Behind Myers, Nelson Aguilar and James White saw seven targets each. The Pats' new tight ends, Jonu Smith and Hunter Henry, saw five and three targets respectively, effectively splitting the tight end production. The Pats should be content to limit their risk in the passing game while exploiting the Jets' weak secondary on key third downs. How New York Will Try to Win You'll still never run 60 plays, shouts Adam Gase as he curses the Jets on his way out the door. Do the Jets deserve a week one mulligan? Are we playing breakfast balls? Things were supposed to be different under new OC Mike LaFleur, and in fairness, at least LaFleur tried. The Jets ran a sad 54 plays, but at least most of them were aggressive, attempting 37 passes. Zach Wilson looked like a frightened child in his debut. He consistently failed to deliver the ball on time, and the game appeared to be moving too fast for him. Wilson did not pass the eye test week one, and in comes a Patriots team with a coach that is known to confuse rookie quarterbacks. This matchup looks scary for Wilson. The Jets should stay aggressive and try to win with their new coaching regime, but they simply lack the roster to be effective. On the ground, the Jets split work between Tevin Coleman, 9 carries, Ty Johnson, 4 carries, and Michael Carter, 4 carries. When you slice up a small piece of pie three different ways, no one gets much pie. Expect the Jets to try to be more balanced for as long as this game remains competitive. 
When the Jets took to the air in week one, they operated a spread out attack with nine different players seeing targets and no one seeing more than seven. Corey Davis and Braxton Berrios lead the way with seven looks each. Ryan Griffin and Tyler Croft split the tight end work almost evenly, capping both players' potential to make an impact. Minimum-priced Week 1 darling Elijah Moore massively disappointed, registering only four targets and managing to gain negative three yards. The Jets will try and protect Wilson before eventually letting him do his best to win the game. Likeliest Game Flow This game checks in with a lowly 42.5 total, by far the lowest on the slate. We should expect the Pats to be content to win this game on defense and with a power running game. They have no reason to expose Mac Jones to a mistake-prone game and should be able to let him do just enough to get his first NFL win. The Jets will try to win, unlike the Adam Gase years, but simply don't have the talent on their roster to keep up. Expect an ineffective running game to eventually give way to an ineffective passing game as the Jets enter catch-up mode. Tributaries Disclaimer, if you take a shot on this tributary, you are a brave human being. While a game with a 42.5 total doesn't seem like there is any way it could end up producing a slate-winning outcome, there is one remote possibility that exists where slate-winning scores could emerge. If Brady were still starting for the Pats, this game write-up would look much different. Instead of talking about how the Pats are going to try and protect their QB, I'd be highlighting how the adaptable Pats are going to throw the ball all over the yard to attack the relative weakness of the Jets' defense. Maybe Belichick trusts Jones more than we think. And because he feels a lot of pressure to win this game, comes out firing against the Jets' poorest secondary. Under this scenario, the total could still be correct if it's all Pat's points, and a slate-winning score could emerge from their passing game. The Broncos at the Jaguars kick off Sunday, September 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 45. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86 both teams will likely have a spread-the-wealth attack. Denver should have a fairly significant advantage at the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. One team was hampered by self-inflicted mistakes in Week 1, and the other played a very clean game. Denver is a conservative, win-with-defense type of team by nature, and Jacksonville is likely to try to slow the game down to stay competitive and protect Trevor Lawrence. Likeliest game flow is a slow game with a chance of Denver pulling away sooner than expected if Jacksonville makes the same mistakes they did in their season opener. How Denver will try to win Denver should be efficient as they move the ball against the talent-deficient defense of Jacksonville. Teddy Bridgewater is not a high-end QB, but what he does extremely well is make good decisions and take care of the ball. Denver has playmakers all over the field. While none of them would qualify as elite playmakers, they have two running backs, three wide receivers, and two tight ends who would all qualify as above average at their positions. I would expect Denver to use a lot of motion, misdirection, and play action to take advantage of the undisciplined Jaguars defense. Denver has a big advantage on the offensive line and should be able to create big holes for their running backs and provide time when needed for Bridgewater. The passing attack will likely focus on short area concepts that are high percentage completions and force the Jaguars to prove it by making tackles and not having breakdowns, rather than taking a lot of shots downfield and wasting downs. It is unlikely Denver will feel the need to be overly aggressive early in the game and will focus on moving the ball efficiently and getting points early to put the Jaguars in a hole. 
that will allow Denver's defense to pin their ears back and cause chaos for Jacksonville's offense. How Jacksonville will try to win Jacksonville's season opener was difficult to watch. Trevor Lawrence is as advertised and has every tool you would want from a franchise quarterback. He controls the line of scrimmage and makes audibles as needed, goes through his progressions, has tremendous arm strength and accuracy, keeps his eyes downfield while scrambling, and has the ability to make off-platform throws. Unfortunately, he was put in nearly the most difficult situation you can imagine in his first game as a professional. The disheartening thing about it was this happened against what is expected to be one of the worst teams in the league, the Houston Texans. Watching that game, it was appalling how many self-inflicted mistakes, drops, penalties, and missed blocks the players around Lawrence were making. Repeatedly on first down, the Jaguars would commit a penalty, drop an on-target pass, or run for a short gain or loss. The first two possessions for the Jaguars were short-circuited by first-down penalties that put them behind the chains and allowed the Texans to bring pressure and put Lawrence's back against the wall. Their third possession almost had the same thing happen, except after an incompletion on a third and 19 play, the Texans committed a roughing the passer penalty that kept the drive alive and led to Jacksonville's only first half points. Lawrence also had two second quarter interceptions, both of which were also preceded by offensive penalties that put them in long down and distant situations. After falling behind 27-7 at halftime, the Jaguars came out very conservatively to start the second half and had consecutive three-and-out possessions to fall behind 34-7. and The Jaguars did score two more touchdowns, one which was aided by another roughing the passer penalty on Houston, and the other in garbage time with nine seconds left against Houston's backups. I normally wouldn't go so in-depth about the previous week's game in this situation, but I'm hoping for your sake you didn't watch that game, and I think that it is all-important context to consider when thinking about how Jacksonville will approach Week 2. The priority for Jacksonville should be putting Lawrence in better positions, and there should be an emphasis on discipline and execution this week in practice. As a former college coach with an inflated ego, by all reports, Meyer has approached this season the same way he did with his college teams, so it is somewhat comical to see the results play out in such a disorganized, undisciplined way. Shocking that Meyer's dictatorship tactics that he used as a means to get teenagers to fall in line have not worked with paid professionals at the highest level of their craft. Warren Sharp has spoken for years about the importance of early down success, as it creates favorable conditions for second and third down plays with shorter distances to gain. Assuming the Jaguars have any sense of themselves, I would expect a heavy dose of runs and short passes to start the game hoping to sustain drives and get to halftime with the game within one score in either direction. The matchup on the outside is very difficult, as Denver has an elite secondary and multiple pass rushers who can create havoc if Lawrence is forced to stand back in the pocket and wait for things to develop. Likeliest Game Flow Denver should be able to move the ball fairly well in this game. Teddy Bridgewater makes good decisions with the ball and doesn't lock onto one player taking whatever the defense gives him as the path of least resistance. They have advantages at the line of scrimmage, and there isn't a spot they will need to avoid. The likeliest game flow is long possessions ending in points for Denver, and Jacksonville taking a conservative approach that will result in short possessions and punts or longer possessions and field goals. Which direction that goes for Jacksonville will depend on if their offensive line can improve from their putrid Week 1 performance, which I expect they will. This game will likely stay reasonably close through halftime, though the Broncos should be able to create some separation in the second half. If the Jaguars make the same sloppy mistakes they made last week, this timeline could get accelerated and speed things up on one side of the ball, but the Broncos are unlikely to have a reason to match that speed. 
The Bills at the Dolphins kick off Sunday, September 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 47.5. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86 Buffalo is coming off a disappointing home loss and flat offensive showing to start their season. Miami is coming off a big road win to start their season. Both teams are better positioned this week for offensive success than they were in their season opener. Josh Allen should have a clean pocket most of the day. Sneaky potential for an up-tempo game. How Buffalo will try to win. The Steelers showed a blueprint of how to slow down the Bills' attack in Week 1, holding them far below their expectations by sitting back in coverage and not blitzing very often. This made it difficult for the Bills to move the ball or find openings in coverage to keep drives alive. Buffalo will likely need to increase their run rate against better defenses going forward to keep teams honest. Miami, however, doesn't have anything close to the same pass rush and defensive line that the Steelers have, which makes sitting back in coverage a much more difficult proposition for them. On top of that, the Dolphins played man coverage at the highest rate in the league, and it would be a huge change from their philosophies to switch things up and sit in zones. I would expect the Dolphins to stick with who they are and bring pressure and play man for this first matchup of the year with a divisional opponent. If it doesn't work this time, they will likely make the adjustment for their second matchup, but the strength of their defense is in their premier cornerbacks. So from a coaching perspective, it would send a bad message to your team if you make a big change like that so early in the season, essentially telling your best defensive players you don't think they can handle the matchup. The Bills are going to start out with more runs than they used in Week 1, but the allure of man coverage will be too tempting to not attack with their elite receiving core that is shifty and great at creating separation. On a similar mindset that we talked about for the Dolphins, Week 2 is too early for the Bills to make a large-scale change in how they play based on one down week, especially coming off a season where they made the conference championship. Allen should once again throw the ball 40-plus times and will likely use his legs on more scrambles against a blitzing defense that will turn its back to him while chasing wide receivers in man coverage. How Miami Will Try to Win Miami came out of Week 1 with a road victory at New England. While it wasn't necessarily pretty on either side of the ball, they got the job done in a place that is never easy to play against a team that is always extremely well-prepared in those games with extra preparation time. This week, they are back home for another key divisional matchup, but their opponent could not be more different in terms of personnel and approach. While the Patriots want to pound the ball and play a ton of 12 personnel, two tight ends, the Bills throw at the highest rate in the league and play three or four wide receivers on the overwhelming majority of their offensive plays. Miami has a smart coaching staff who understands the game and what it takes to win. While they have a good defense, their staff should understand that the Bills are going to score points and they need to score points early and often to have a chance rather than hoping to keep it close and then scrambling for points from behind. With Will Fuller back in the lineup, the Dolphins have playmakers and speed all over the field. The Bills bottled up Najee Harris in Week 1 and will likely not provide much room for the Dolphins' run game either. With so many field stretchers and some players who are great with the ball in their hands, the Dolphins will likely be pass-heavy while still being conscious of protecting QB Tua Tagovailoa and getting the ball out of his hands in a timely manner, as their offensive line has a lot of issues to overcome. When they do throw downfield, it will almost certainly be away from the Bills' star CB, Tredavious White. 
though he is unlikely to have a shadow matchup, so that really doesn't tell us anything specific about a player likely to benefit. It is also noteworthy that Tua was moving very well in week one, now almost two years removed from the hip injury that hobbled him last season, and the Dolphins will likely get him out of the pocket on some designed plays to stretch the Bills' defense. Likeliest Game Flow Both teams played at a high pace and with a decent amount of no huddle in week one. I would expect the same here, as that is at the core of who the Bills are, and the Dolphins are smart enough to know they need to be aggressive and score early to have a chance to win. The Dolphins' two most successful drives in week one were their drives where they used more no huddle and played at an up-tempo pace. That should not be lost on the coaching staff, and with Fuller back in the lineup, they have every reason to press their foot on the gas. In a divisional matchup where both teams know each other so well, there is a good chance this game starts somewhat slowly, but it has a high likelihood to pick up pace and scoring as the game wears on. The biggest threat to this game taking off would be the lack of a running game for both teams, which could cause some issues with the red zone efficiency and keep the scoring in check even if volume and pace are up, as expected. However, both teams have deep threats and playmakers who can score from anywhere, and the QBs who are capable with their legs so that concern should not be a reason to completely stay away. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The 49ers at the Eagles kick off Sunday, September 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 49.5. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86. San Francisco had many positives from their season opening win, but also showed some issues that a better opponent may expose. Both teams will face more resistance at the line of scrimmage than they faced week one. From a matchup perspective, both teams had a close to as optimal of a situation as they could ask for to start the season. These teams were predictable, albeit with a spread-the-wealth approach when playing while in control of the game. If one team takes a substantial lead here, how they react will be less predictable or certain. How San Francisco will try to win The 49ers will attempt to control this game at the line of scrimmage and put Jenny Garoppolo in manageable situations throughout the game. The reduced playing time of Brandon Ayuk and the season-ending injury of Raheem Mostert significantly alter the makeup of the San Francisco offense from a playmaking standpoint. With Mostert out and rookie Trey Sermon in, it's anyone's guess how the backfield touches will be deployed. The Eagles are historically above average against tight ends, and after watching Week 1, will likely be prepared to give extra attention to Debo Samuel. This has the feeling of a bit of a standoff, as the Eagles are unlikely to get torched by any specific San Francisco player, but also are unlikely to completely shut down any specific avenue for production. The 49ers will likely attempt to assert themselves on the ground and use play action or other means of misdirection to create advantages early against an aggressive Eagles defense. In an ideal world, their defense will contain the Eagles, and they will sustain methodical, efficient drives and punctuate them with touchdowns. While this outcome is far from a certainty, the 49ers are well-coached and have a veteran-heavy roster that could execute at a high level and take control early. How Philadelphia Will Try to Win 
The Eagles have what appears to be a franchise cornerstone quarterback, top five offensive line, and speedy playmakers at the skilled positions. Jalen Hurts gives them a chance to win any game with his dynamic playmaking ability and what he has shown to be above-average decision-making. With dynamic playmaker Miles Sanders and explosive rookie Kenny Gainwell in the backfield, the Eagles will stretch opposing defenses horizontally and force them to respect many different run game concepts from the opening kick. The Eagles also have a variety of weapons in the pass game in their dependable and playmaking tight ends in Zach Ertz and Dallas Godair as well as a trio of playmaking wide receivers in Devonta Smith, Jalen Rager, and Kez Watkins. I would expect many read option type of looks early from the Eagles, as well as some play action or double move type of shot plays that attempt to exploit an aggressive 49ers defense. The 49ers gave up 33 points to the Lions, who were led by Jared Goff in Week 1. While I expect them to perform better in a more competitive game, it is worth noting that they had many flaws against a talent-deficient offense, and the Eagles are much more likely to exploit any deficiencies from the start. Likeliest Game Flow Both teams are likely to sustain drives, but encounter difficulty turning those drives into a large number of points. The likeliest game flow is the Eagles controlling the line of scrimmage on the offensive side and moving the ball consistently as the Lions were able to do when they provided adequate protection for Goff. The 49ers are likely to turn to their run game and play action as a means to protect Garoppolo in this spot. While Kyle Shanahan has a pissing match with his possible superstar wide receiver, Brandon Ayuk, the 49ers may struggle to move the ball early in the game. The reality is that, as great of an offensive mind as Shanahan is, the 49ers can't just move one of their best players into a part-time role and expect to move the ball consistently against a respectable defense. In this scenario, the 49ers will likely be spreading their rushes between two or three running backs while trying to get the ball out of Jimmy G's hands quickly on passing plays to Debo and George Kittle, or a plethora of other, meh, skill position players. On the other side of the ball, the Eagles are likely to test and stretch the 49ers' defense horizontally first with misdirection and read option concepts, and then vertically with shot plays to their elite speed options. This should be a competitive game throughout. Both teams are well-coached and have enough talent on the defensive side of the ball to keep the game from getting out of hand either way. Meanwhile, neither team is likely to completely abandon their identity, rushes and short passes followed by yards after the catch at any point before the fourth quarter, unless somehow they are facing an extreme deficit. The Rams at the Colts kick off Sunday, September 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 48. Game Overview by Hilo Not much to love from this one from a guaranteed points perspective. Floors are mostly scary low. Jonathan Taylor gains some appeal for his heavy involvement in the Colts' offense, but the matchup is less than ideal. Rams' defense may gain steam as the week progresses, but I don't like betting on low-pressure-rate defensive lines against solid offensive lines. How Los Angeles will try to win First of all, this offense is so much more fun to watch with a quarterback capable of attacking all areas of the field. The Rams ran only 52 offensive plays in a week one dismantling of the Bears and held a very modest 54% situation neutral pass rate. The offensive snap rates played out largely as we thought they would, with tight end Tyler Higby leading the way with a full 100% snap rate, followed by Cooper Cup at a 94% snap rate, tied with running back Darrell Henderson, who I expect to see his snaps gradually decrease as Sony Michelle learns the offense. 
Robert Woods at 77%, Van Jefferson at 69%, and offseason addition Deshaun Jackson at 27%. 20 of Matthew Stafford's 26 pass attempts filtered through the three primary pass catchers, Cup 10, Higby 6, and Woods 4. Expect the Rams to continue to play with pace in neutral to negative game scripts. Allow their top-rated defense to provide good field position and additional possessions and remain aggressive with the ball as the year goes on. As previously mentioned, Darrell Henderson played a massive 94% of the offensive snaps from scrimmage in Week 1 and saw 17 of 18 total running back opportunities. His snap rate and opportunity share was a full 100% until deep into the game when Sony Michelle saw his one carry. I expect this to turn into a loose committee once Sony learns a complex offense and run scheme, which could be as soon as this week or could take a few weeks. Henderson saw only one target on 16 routes run, but the Rams largely didn't need much as they cruised to an easy victory. I expect Henderson to lead the way once again, with Sony likely mixing in for 15-20% to of the offensive snaps. The matchup is a poor one against a top-three run defense from 2020, even after the Colts surrendered 5.37 adjusted line yards in Week 1. The aerial attack is where the majority of the fantasy value on this team lies. Cooper Cup, Robert Woods, and Tyler Higbee are all borderline every-snap players in a high-powered passing offense. The biggest news out of this game, as far as injuries go, lie with the Colts' second level, as both all-world linebacker Darius Leonard and lockdown corner Javier Rhodes have yet to practice this week, as of Thursday. Leonard missing would be a large boost to the Rams' offense overall, but a massive boost to Tyler Higbee, while Rhodes' absence would again benefit the entire Rams' offense, but be a massive boost to both Cup and Woods. Consider all three high, high high-ceiling plays here. The Colts continue to struggle with the deep ball, providing further intrigue for the speed of Van Jefferson and Deshaun Jackson. How Indianapolis Will Try to Win The Colts landed right in the middle of the pack with respect to situation-neutral pass rate in Week 1 at 58%, right in line with their 56% rate from 2020. The limitations placed on the offense through Carson Wentz should not be understated as his 6.6 yards per completion places him in the bottom three in the league. This offense should continue to flow through the running backs, with low upside passing mixed in. The ground game flows through Jonathan Taylor, who also saw additional pass game usage in Week 1 compared to his previous roles, 7 targets. The fantasy prospectus for this Colts run game depends largely on the health of their offensive line, as two members of one of last season's top-rated offensive lines worked their way back from off-season surgeries. The matchup is middling on paper after the Colts struggled to sustain a push up front against the solid run defense of the Seahawks. The matchup yields an average net adjusted line yards metric of 4.17. The biggest surprise from week one through the air was the heavy involvement of both running backs in the pass game. Colts running backs accounted for 15 of the 38 total targets, split 8-7 in favor of Taylor over Hines. With Ty Hilton still out, expect Michael Pittman Jr. and Zach Pascal to continue to operate as the starting wide receivers, with both Paris Campbell and rookie Mike Strachan mixing in for wide three sets. Keep an eye on Strachan, tight end Jack Doyle, and offensive lineman Quentin Nelson's injury statuses leading up to the game, as all three have either yet to practice or have gotten in only one limited practice as of Thursday. As alluded to earlier, the pass game is primarily short and intermediate work and of the low upside variety. Likeliest Game Flow It is likely up to the Colts to keep pace here, the way this game lines up. Expect them to start the game attempting to control the time of possession battle, but eventually be forced to move the ball via increased short area passing and long sustained drives. This should lead to a scenario where the Rams assert control of the game rather early and can run conservative offense deeper into the game. 
With this type of setup, we shouldn't expect a spike to volume for the primary pass catchers out of the Rams, and the Colts spread the ball enough and are low enough upside to limit much of the fantasy appeal from the game overall. The Steelers at the Raiders kick off Sunday, September 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 47. Game Overview by Hilo Expect volume for Deontay Johnson and Juju Smith-Schuster over the short areas of the field against a defensive scheme designed to limit yards after the catch potential. The snap rates, usage numbers, and opportunity shares for every Raider not named Darren Waller leave secondary Raider options completely off the table in a difficult matchup. Darren Waller could legitimately lead the league in targets, a highly valuable proposition from a tight end position devoid of bankable production. How Las Vegas will try to win. Vegas called 26 pass plays to only 10 rush plays in the first half of their Monday night football game against the Ravens, ending with 56 pass attempts to just 21 rush attempts. Now, does that indicate a philosophical shift away from the heavy situation-neutral rush rates of 2020, 44%, ninth highest in the league, or might it require a little more nuance? Starting running back Josh Jacobs was noticeably less than 100% after being out or limited for most of the practice week leading up to the game. Furthermore, the duo of Calais Campbell and Brandon Williams form one of the top run-stopping defensive line units in the league. Might this be more a case of specific game planning? In my opinion, it is much more likely to be the latter. On a standard week, we should still expect to see the Raiders to be a run-balanced team, capable of hitting all three depths of the field through the pass game if required to do so. This game, however, is not expected to be a standard week for them. The matchup on the ground yields a below-average 3.5 net-adjusted line yards metric, and Josh Jacobs is still nursing both foot and toe injuries. Failed to practice Wednesday, I'm writing this on Thursday morning. I would tentatively expect him to play once again, but be rather limited in both snap rate and efficiency. One thing we know from this Raiders offense is their propensity to punch the ball into the end zone on the ground, with Jacobs rushing for two more scores in week one on only 10 carries. Poor matchup, poor health, and likely neutral to negative game script have this backfield a complete stay away for me. Through the air, the offense starts and mostly stops with tight end Darren Waller. We all found out fairly quickly how well relying on previous year's data can burn you as recently as TJ Hawkinson versus the Niners. In their week one stunning overtime win, Darren Waller was the only member of the Raiders, outside of quarterback Derek Carr, to play more than two-thirds of the offensive snaps run from scrimmage. Quite telling, no? Brian Edwards, Henry Ruggs III, Foster Moreau, Hunter Renfro, Josh Jacobs, and Kenyon Drake all played between 66% and 48% of the offensive snaps. I look for that to continue here in what should be considered a difficult matchup from top to bottom. How Pittsburgh will try to win A year after finishing second in the league in situation-neutral pass rate at 65%, the Steelers came out and held a rate of 62% in the same metric in Week 1. Ben Roethlisberger simply does not have the arm strength he once did, and the struggles of this now younger offensive line remained, leaving a majority of that passing work to the short-to-intermediate variety in Week 1. Overall, the identity of this team continues to revolve around a suffocating defense and short-to-intermediate passing game. One interesting tidbit, the Steelers failed to blitz even once in Week 1, which was likely more a tribute to the escapability of opposing quarterback Josh Allen than it was a sign of things to come this season. It is possible, maybe even probable, we see the Steelers elect to keep their blitz rates low once again here, but for different reasons. 
With no blitz, the additional personnel can be dedicated inside to blanket coverage on the Raiders' primary weapon, Darren Waller. This makes most sense to me from a likely game-planning approach, particularly considering the injuries to Raiders running back Josh Jacobs and the organic pressure rates the Steelers' defensive line is able to generate on their own. In what developed into a true slugfest, the Steelers struggled to get anything going on the ground against the Bills, averaging a disparagingly low 2.8 yards per running back carry. The matchup is perceived to be a good one on the ground this week, but the Raiders just held the top-run offense in the game to an obscene 3.56 adjusted line yards metric, and Pittsburgh displayed a downright putrid 2.60 adjusted line yards metric in their first game. Together, it yields a net adjusted line yards metric of just 3.08. Small sample size alert, but shocking nonetheless. Yes, rookie running back Najee Harris played on every single offensive snap for the Steelers in their Week 1 game, but I was left wanting more after he saw only three targets on the day. Furthermore, the massive 56% of Harris's 45 rush yards came after contact. We saw the jet sweeps, pre-snap motions, and shifts that we alluded to in the preseason primer, which are all designed to be utilized from the pistol formation to open up an opposing defense. Over 33% of the Steelers' pass plays in Week 1 came through play action, a method designed to open up the lanes in the second level. Offensive coordinator Matt Canada is clearly trying to do what he can with this offense to manufacture success, but the matchup in Week 1 was a difficult one. Big Ben's 6.2 average intended air yards were right in line with his value from last year, so this offense will continue to rely on yards after the catch and high completion rates for success. Opposing defensive coordinator Gus Bradley's bump-and-run press-cover-three defensive scheme is one that limits downfield passing, a logical hire after the team allowed a massive 11.4 yards per completion last season. Bradley's system blitzed at the lowest rate in the NFL during his four years in Los Angeles, so we should expect more of the same here. In all, this defensive scheme should do well in limiting yards after the catch potential, but should seed high completion rates over the short and intermediate areas of the field. Expect the Steelers to have to methodically march the field here, using the short passing game as an extension of the run game. Likeliest Game Flow The primary game flow from this one is likely the Steelers to manage, meaning they hold the clear edge on both sides of the ball. We are liable to see an increase to the standard number of plays run from scrimmage as the Steelers tilt pass-heavy organically and the Raiders are forced to tilt more pass-heavy, considering the injuries at running back, weak offensive line, and likely neutral to negative game script. This should serve as a bump to the primary volume pieces from both offenses, primarily Darren Waller, Deontay Johnson, and Juju Smith-Schuster. In a setup like this, we can be fairly certain about the floor from these three, as no change to game flow creates a situation where those roles change, meaning the range outcomes for each sees a substantial boost. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Bengals at the Bears kick off Sunday, September 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 45. Game Overview by Pappy324 This is likely to be a run-oriented affair between two teams that want to grind out wins. Montgomery and Mixon both have game scripts that lead to 30-touch games. The Bengals could choose to attack the Bears' weak secondary. All the key players in this game are affordable and likely to be low-owned. How Cincinnati will try to win. 
The Bengals are coming off a dramatic win in which they barely held off a surging Vikings team to escape with a three-point overtime victory. Surprisingly, Joe Burrow attempted only 27 passes, compared to 36 team carries. Part of that was due to game flow, but the game was never out of hand, and this type of approach might just be the way the Bengals want to attack this season. The relative weakness of the Bears' defense is their secondary. They boast a strong front seven with one of the best pass rushers in the game in Khalil Mack. Did the Bengals pound the ball against the Vikings to expose the relative weakness of the Vikings' run defense? Or did they pound the ball against the Vikings because that's the way the Bengals want to play this year? Week 2 should give us a lot of insight into this question, but given Joe Burrow's injury last year, I suspect the Bengals want to ride their ground game until forced to give it up. Through the air, Burrow will have the best matchup against Chicago's suspect cornerbacks that Stafford just lit up for 321 yards and three touchdowns. If the Bengals attack through the air, Burrow is set up for success in a game where the Bears' secondary will be overmatched against the Bengals' weapons. The Bears simply don't have the personnel to cover T. Higgins, Jamar Chase, and Tyler Boyd. How Chicago Will Try to Win The Bears threw the ball 40 times in Week 1 against 26 team carries. This should be taken with a grain of salt, however, because the game flow forced the Bears to turn much pass heavier than they would ideally like to play. Matt Nagy hasn't always been the best coach, but he's not foolish enough to think the way to win games is through Andy Dalton. When will we see Justin Fields? No one really knows, but it could happen any play. The Bears' preferred method of attack is on the ground, where they'll look to feed David Montgomery for as long as the game is competitive. The Bears are sitting as three-point home favorites, so there is a much better chance this game stays competitive than their Week 1 contest. Montgomery was featured in Week 1, 16 carries, but Damian Williams also received a notable 6 carries. That split might have been due to the game flow, but it's something to keep an eye on and shows that in negative game scripts, Montgomery might lose work. Expect the Bears to give Montgomery every opportunity to exploit the soft underbelly of the Bengals' defense. When the Bears take to the air, they'll be attacking the relative strength of the Bengals' defense. The Bengals' secondary is only a strength compared to how bad they are against the run. Admittedly, the Bengals' run defense surprised in Week 1, holding Dalvin Cook to a meager 3.1 yards per catch. Maybe the Bengals' front seven will be better than expected. A one-game sample is too small to change their season outlook, so as of now, continue to consider them a weak unit. None of the Bears' pass catchers have a difficult matchup. The biggest obstacle to their success is the Bears' preferred method of attack and volume concerns for everyone other than Allen Robinson. Likeliest Game Flow This game has one of the lower totals on the slate at only 45 points. However, it's expected to be a competitive contest with the Bears as three-point home favorites. The most likely game flow is a grinded-out affair, with both teams preferring to lean on their running games for as long as possible. There is very little chance the Bears stray from a run-oriented, hide-Andy-Dalton approach. If this game stays close, the Bears will keep trying to run their way to a victory. Tributaries There is a path for this game to get exciting if the Bengals decide to attack the Bears' weak secondary. Under this game scenario, the Bengals would come out of the gate passing to take a large lead and force the Bears out of their preferred method of attack. If that happens, the Bears will attack aggressively against a weak Bengals secondary. We could see fireworks from the wide receivers. The best way to play out this scenario would be to play Allen Robinson and pair him with members of the Bengals passing attack.
Texans at Browns. Kickoff Sunday, September 19th, 1 p.m. Eastern. Over under 48. Game overview by Hilo. Interesting case where the likeliest scenario leads to a maddening spread of touches for the Browns. We expect the Browns to find success, but their spread it out offense means the floors of all skill position players are lower than we'd otherwise like here. The field might be looking to the Texans for cheap upside, but that upside is basically a fallacy. Interesting tributary scenario, not in the sense that an alternate game flow is likely, but from a sense of how the Browns score. How Houston will try to win. The Texans are fresh off an opening week win over the hapless Jaguars. That game saw the Texans control the tempo throughout, which led to a ridiculously low 45% situation-neutral pass rate. Expect this team to start the game attempting to win in the same fashion, but to not enjoy the same level of success in the likeliest scenario. That should lead to a substantial increase to the 33 total pass attempts from a week ago. The running back situation for the Texans is about as ridiculous as you would have thought heading into the season. Mark Ingram II paced the team in snap rate in Week 1, parlaying 46% of the offensive plays run from scrimmage into 27 total running back opportunities, 26 rush attempts, and one target. In a game where we can't confidently project the Texans to run the football 41 times, expect his likeliest scenario to regress to 12 to 14 running back opportunities. David Johnson, Philip Lindsay, and Rex Burkhead rounded out this four-headed running back nightmare, playing 28, 26, and 13% of the offensive snaps respectively. Expect David Johnson and Rex Burkhead to be more involved this week as the team likely plays from behind, with the likeliest scenario leading to 8 to 12 running back opportunities for Johnson and 5 to 7 for Burkhead in the likeliest scenario. Lindsay should round out this backfield with 5 to 7 opportunities of his own. Big picture, not a ton to love here in a difficult matchup in the trenches. Brandon Cooks led the team in snap rate amongst pass catchers at 78% in week one, followed by primary blocking tight end Farrell Brown, pass catching tight end Jordan Aikens, rookie slot wide receiver Nico Collins, perimeter wide receiver Chris Connolly, blocking tight end Anthony Eau and Swiss Army Knife wide receiver Danny Amendola. I'd expect the snap rates for Cooks, Aikens, Collins, and Connolly to increase this week as the team is likely forced to the air with greater frequency. Expect the likeliest scenario for Tyrod Taylor pass attempts to land in the 35 to 37 attempt range with 8 to 12 targets for Cooks, 5 to 7 for Aikens, Connolly, and Collins, and 3 to 5 for Brown. We saw how communication miscues from a zone-heavy defense are likely to happen early in the season in Week 1 after the Browns struggled to contain the speed of Tyreek Hill and underneath skill of Travis Kelsey, but consider the upside cap for all players not named Brandon Cooks. How Cleveland will try to win. Cleveland's likeliest plan of attack for this game should be fairly evident to even the most casual of football observers. The team will be without Odell Beckham Jr. for the second game in a row, carries the highest net adjusted line yards mismatch we are likely to see all season, 5.52, are playing in a game where they're favored by almost two touchdowns, and carry the second highest Vegas implied team total on the slate. The problem, or good part depending on who you ask, is that the Texans simply don't have the personnel to slow down the Browns' rushing attack. The Browns finished week one with a situation neutral pass rate of just 55% in a game against the top football team in the league, which closely mirrors their 2020 value of 52%. This team likes to run the ball, and they do it damn well. Running back Nick Chubb is quite possibly the best pure runner of the football in the league, and he runs behind the top offensive line in the league. Change of pace specialist Kareem Hunt is quite possibly the most talented backup running back in the league. The Browns ran 59 total offensive plays in week one against the best team in the league who were much more likely to sustain drives than the Texans here. The Browns finished week one, ranked third in the NFL in drive success rate, 
while the Chiefs finished second. The Texans finished 19th. This means that we're likely to see a slight uptick in total offensive plays run from scrimmage. The likeliest scenario leads to 27 to 31 total rushes from the Browns here, with upside for more, which should lead to a tight 18 to 22 running back opportunities for Nick Chubb and 12 to 16 for Kareem Hunt. Wide receiver Jarvis Landry predictably ran low upside routes in week one, finishing with an average depth of target of just 3.4 yards and an average air yards per route run of 0.33. Expect him to once again lead the team in snap rate and route rate, but the upside is capped until he is deployed in a higher upside role. Donovan Peoples-Jones ranked second on the team in snaps and routes run, followed by Austin Hooper, David Njoku, Anthony Schwartz, and Harrison Bryant. Expect the elevated 12 personnel, and even some 13 personnel, rates to continue for as long as Odell Beckham Jr. remains out after the team ran 11 personnel, only 44% of their week one snaps. The matchup is a good one, but we can't confidently project the Browns to attack heavily through the air in the likeliest scenario here. Likeliest game flow. When we consider all the angles, as we should for each and every game on a slate, this game falls towards the bottom of the list when it comes to potential tributary game scenarios. The likeliest game flow is the Browns are able to sustain drives primarily on the ground and grind out an easy win on the backs of their running back duo and offensive line. Along the same line of thinking, the tributary scenario doesn't necessarily involve the Browns failing as much as it involves them scoring all their touchdowns through the air. See Week 7, 2020, where Baker Mayfield threw only 28 passes, but passed for 297 yards and 5 touchdowns against the Bengals. However unlikely, it is still within the realm of possibility and something to consider for my MME cadre. Saints at Panthers. Kickoff Sunday, September 19th, 1 p.m. Eastern. Over under 44 and a half. Game overview by M. Johnson 86. The offensive matchup for both teams will likely be much more difficult in week two than it was in week one. Both QBs had very good openers as the new starter for their respective teams, but coaches will have reason to hide them this week as long as it is close. This game projects for a slower pace with neither team likely to open up a big lead early on. How New Orleans will try to win. The game plan for the Saints this year is pretty clearly going to be less aggressive than they have been in past years, at least until Jameis Winston fully gains Sean Payton's trust. While Winston had a very good week one, his fantasy points are misleading as he was averaging under five yards per attempt on 19 passes before a 55-yard TD against Packers backups in the fourth quarter. I would expect more of the same approach here with a heavy dose of rushes and short passes for the Saints. Their defense has a significant advantage at the line of scrimmage, and the Saints will likely feel no reason to be overly aggressive and let Winston make mistakes early. Instead, relying on their defense to force mistakes from the Panthers and create short fields for Winston and the offense. The Panthers' defense plays a very high rate of cover three defense, which limits big plays and forces things underneath. Peyton will be aware of that and will likely be hesitant to let Jameis try to push the ball down the field without any big-time downfield threats. This plays right into what the Saints would like to do, however, and they should be able to move the ball well, even if it is at a methodical pace. How Carolina will try to win. Carolina faces a big challenge in the Saints' defensive front and will need to be ready for a big jump in competition after handling the lowly Jets in Week 1. Sam Darnold had a respectable opener but the name of the game here will be protecting him against a defense that just made the reigning MVP, Aaron Rodgers, and last year's highest scoring offense look horrible. Expect a lot of pressure and exotic blitzes from the Saints as they attempt to make Darnold see ghosts, as he did in his infamous Monday night meltdown against the Patriots two years ago. A heavy dose of runs, screens, and short passes will be in order for the Panthers, with their primary playmakers being given the ball in space. 
Panthers should also look to use some creative concepts and play action to try to keep the Saints somewhat on their heels and reduce the pressure they can bring. The Panthers will have limited opportunities due to the pace that the game is likely to play out with. If they are unable to run the ball effectively and have short possessions ending in punts early in the game, then they will likely turn more to short passing and try to find isolated matchups where they can move the ball through the air in a quick manner that doesn't put Darnold under heavy pressure. Likeliest Game Flow Due to the nature of the conservative attacks both teams are likely to employ, the game clock should move right along and limit possessions for both sides. Making efficiency in the red zone and the turnover battle paramount in determining if this game is able to exceed expectations. If leaning one way, the Saints are more likely to get a multiple score lead and force the hand of the Panthers than the other way around. This is simply because the Saints have a better, more aggressive defense and also have one of the best offensive lines in football so they should be able to run the ball more efficiently from the outset and not need to get more aggressive. All that being said, this game projects to play with a slower pace, but that is a very fragile projection due to the history of mistakes that both QBs have had throughout their careers, which could quickly flip the game on its head, and the playmakers that each side has and the volume of touches those stars should see, giving them more opportunities to turn in a big play that can flip the switch on a game. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Vikings at Cardinals. Kickoff Sunday, September 19th, 4.05 p.m. Eastern, over under 50 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. Fairly wide range of potential outcomes with respect to game flow here. This means we need to be extremely careful how we deploy members from this game, ensuring players are entered into rosters with specific game flows in mind. Sandemir's always one Viking suggestion continues to carry merit in an absurdly concentrated offense. Keep an eye on Minnesota's personnel usage rates in this game, as they shifted to much heavier three and four wide receiver sets in week one, likely due to the lack of depth at the tight end position. How Minnesota will try to win. We know by now that how Minnesota will try to win a game and how they might be forced to try and win a game are very different ideas. The big picture is they are willing to open things up as required, dependent on game flow. The new Kubiak-esque outside zone run scheme being built in Minnesota this season should enjoy further success as the season moves on. Transitioning an offense from a power-based run game to an outside zone scheme takes time and repetition, evidenced by the lack of success in their week one game against the Bengals a game in which running back Dalvin Cook averaged a measly 3.1 yards per carry. The weakness of this offensive line is on the inside, so until they are able to master the spread concepts of the outside zone run scheme, we are likely to see them struggle on the ground. Nothing has changed to start the year with respect to Dalvin Cook's elite usage. He handled 29 of the 36 running back opportunities out of the backfield. The matchup is less than ideal, going against a formidable defensive line and running behind a weak offensive line, this matchup yields a net adjusted line yards metric of just 3.2. This game could take on an entirely different form in the case of Minnesota being forced to the air earlier than they would otherwise like. Over the previous three seasons, Kirk Cousins is the number one passer in the NFL against cover one defensive formations, a formation the Cardinals used at the highest rate in the NFL in 2020. The success level through the air, or lack thereof, is likely to come down to protection up front against a strong Cardinals pass rush but the lack of talent and primary coverage scheme from the Cardinals are liable to lead to explosive plays here. A week after relatively disappointing in the shadows of fellow wide receiver Adam Thielen, 
Justin Jefferson sets up extremely well to take advantage of these defensive shortcomings from the Cardinals. A year after playing with three wide receivers on the field at a 38% clip, 11, 20, and 02 personnel, the Vikings came out and ran three wide receiver sets a massive for them 66% of the time in week one, with a further 12% of snaps played with four wide receivers on the field. This led to KJ Osborne handling an 81% snap rate and nine targets, the same total as Justin Jefferson. This is most likely a case of injuries and personnel departures of the tight end room, but something to monitor moving forward nonetheless. How Arizona will try to win. The Cardinals looked basically exactly the same on offense as they did in 2020, but now boast a formidable defensive line with the addition of J.J. Watt to a line that already held all-pro edge rusher Chandler Jones, five sacks in week one. The team still holds a top 10 run-blocking offensive line, but a bottom 10 offensive line when it comes to pass protection which is somewhat mitigated by the rushing prowess of quarterback Kyler Murray. We should expect pace, a horizontally spread offense, and a handful of downfield strikes per game through Christian Kirk and rookie wide receiver Rondell Moore. We broke down how the team is likely to enjoy improved downfield success rates in the offseason primer, which came to fruition in Week 1. Week 1 showed us that not a whole lot has changed with respect to the run game for the Cardinals. Chase Edmonds and James Conner combined for 28 rush attempts and 4 targets, with both backs seeing 16 running back opportunities, yet Kyler Murray scored the lone rushing touchdown. After finishing 2020 with a situation-neutral pass rate of 56%, the Cardinals went out and held a situation-neutral pass rate of 52% in their opener. The matchup yields a net-adjusted line yards metric of 4.7, a top-five value on the week, but this remains a head-scratching backfield week-to-week. Expect more of the same here with backup James Conner charged with a straight-ahead power run roll, and starter, Chase Edmonds, owning an outside-end zone read roll with sparse pass game usage. Lead wide receiver DeAndre Hopkins actually saw a slight uptick in average depth of target in Week 1 when compared to last season, ending the week with a value of 10.9, a full two yards greater than 2020. Newcomer A.J. Green took on more of a possession style, finishing with an average depth of target of 9.0. Christian Kirk maintained the downfield role, 12.0, and rookie Rondell Moore was deployed to all depths of the field. His 4.4 ADOT doesn't tell the whole story as far as his usage goes, and he even shook free on a broken play on third down in the second quarter for a long completion. The overall identity of this Cardinals pass game remains the same as what we saw last season, with a horizontally spread nature and sporadic downfield attempts. The secondary of the Vikings, with Brashad Breland and newcomer Patrick Peterson at corner, and Xavier Woods and Harrison Smith at safety, is well-equipped to deal with the possession style of the perimeter receivers in this offense, but should struggle to contain any deep passing. Likeliest Game Flow There's an interesting dynamic to this game that gives a high level of uncertainty with respect to the likeliest game flow. In that, we should expect Mike Zimmer's defensive philosophy to revolve around stopping the run and forcing teams into longer down and distance to go situations, which is exactly how the Cardinals should be looking to attack here. That said. The largest influence on how this game plays out is likely to be the Cardinals' level of success in downfield passing, particularly considering the Vikings' struggles to contain that area in their Week 1 matchup with the Bengals. It is likeliest the Cardinals dictate the pace and tempo here via the aforementioned metrics. Basically, the Vikings would like to rely on their run game to open up the pass, but are entirely capable and willing to turn to the air when required. If the Cardinals connect on a couple of downfield strikes or are able to methodically move the chains to start the game, we could see this game turn into one of the bigger shootouts on the slate. The Vikings should be able to absolutely dismantle the heavy cover one usage of the Cardinals if forced to the air early, 
as Kirk Cousins has averaged a 123.6 passer rating over the previous three seasons against the Cardinals' primary coverage scheme, which ranked first in the league over that span. Conversely, if the Vikings are able to control the line of scrimmage on either side, this game could disappoint from a box score perspective. The numbers and metrics tell us the former should be the likeliest case, but I want it to be clear that this game comes with a fairly wide range of potential outcomes. So ensure any exposure to this game is built with particular game scripts in mind. Falcons at Bucks. Kickoff Sunday, September 19th, 4.05 p.m. Eastern, over under 52. Game Overview by Hilo. A glaring example of a game that has a wide range of real-world outcomes. With a setup like this, it is highest EV to either attack the game fully or fade it fully with the additional knowledge that the field will not be entering many game stacks into play. One of the rare cases where naked Brady is interesting as a leverage piece. How Atlanta will try to win. Matt Ryan's line in week one, 164 yards and no touchdowns. Calvin Ridley, five for 51 and zero on eight targets. Kyle Pitts, four for 31 and zero on eight targets. Etc. 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 I do this not to influence our own process, rather to highlight how the field is likely reacting, or overreacting, to week one. We were drafting this offense as an up-tempo, concentrated, and capable offense all off-season in best ball. Are we really about to allow one week to change our entire off-season process? I sure as hell am not. Okay, with that out of the way, let's dig in. We saw my personal usage call from this preseason ring true out of Atlanta in week one. Although, as predicted, their personnel usage rates only tell half the story as rookie tight end Kyle Pitts was used all over the field. On paper, it says Atlanta ran 51% 12 personnel, when in reality, it was more akin to a spread 11 personnel alignment. Kyle Pitts saw 61% snap rate in week one, with Hayden Hurst at 60%, Russell Gage at 68, Calvin Ridley at 85, and tertiary options all sitting around 7-29%. to 29%. Look for this Arthur Smith-led offense to come out firing after a week filled with self-reflection. The backfield was dominated by Mike Davis, who played a massive 75% of the offensive snaps in Week 1 and saw a solid 21 running back opportunities in one of the worst game scripts he will see all season. That level of usage is one tier below elite, but we might have to wait until Week 5 against the Jets to truly capitalize on it, with matchups against the Buccaneers, Giants, and football team on tap over the next three weeks. Behind Davis, converted wide receiver Corderell Patterson saw a 35% snap rate and nine running back opportunities, and Keith Smith mopped up some meaningless end-of-game snaps for five running back opportunities. The matchup is no bueno this week against a defense that allowed the fewest fantasy points per game to opposing backfields in 2020. Atlanta's offensive line actually performed quite well in Week 1, inflating the net adjusted line yards metric to a value of 4.37 yards. I won't be going here but nobody else will either. Calvin Ridley saw a ridiculous 50.3% of the team's available air yards with an average depth of target of 12 in week one. Yeah, the dude will be fine. Not the greatest matchup on paper on tap, but this is a guy that can beat any matchup as evidenced by his seventh ranked average cushion in week one of 6.86. If this offense puts up points against the Bucks, he will likely be a large reason why. Rookie tight end Kyle Pitts saw a 31.4% air yard share in week one, which ranked third amongst all tight ends. His average cushion created was 4.73, second in the league. He saw snaps in line, 11, in the slot, 20, and split wide, 12. 
The largest problem for the Falcons in week one was an offensive line that ranked above average in run blocking metrics, but allowed an unsightly 41% pressure rate, which was a problem for quarterback Matt Ryan all afternoon. With another high expected pressure rate on top for week two, look for Arthur Smith to adjust and get the ball out of Ryan's hands quicker. The weakness of this Bucks defense over the last 20 games has been over the middle of the field towards slot corner Sean Murphy Bunting, who landed on IR following the season opener. Ross Cockrell should step into the slot coverage after playing 86% of his snaps from the slot in week one. He's a six-foot defensive back with 4.56 speed, 36th percentile speed scores, 51st percentile burst scores, and 11th percentile agility scores. Russell Gage played 59% of his snaps from the slot in 2020 and started the year at 51% slot snap rate and is an interesting option against the weakest part of the Buccaneers' defense. How Tampa Bay will try to win. This is Brady's world. We're all just living in it. The Bucs showed us an ungodly 78% situation-neutral pass rate in Week 1, likely inflated due to the specific opponent's propensity to put up points. Said another way, Arians likely kept his foot on the gas, knowing full well the Cowboys could come back at any time. Although this is still a pass-heavy team, we're likely to see a steady trickle regression towards their 2020 rate of 62% as the season progresses. There's not much else to say regarding how Tampa Bay will attempt to win games as literally nothing has changed for this team in almost a full calendar year. Bruce Arians' most recent quote surrounding this backfield was that any one of his three running backs could be named the starter, so take the vote of confidence he gave Ronald Jones this week by naming him the starter with a grain of salt. The truth is that all of Leonard Fournette, Ronald Jones, and Giovanni Bernard are going to be involved on a weekly basis, with the always present threat of the coaching staff riding the hot hand. The 4.45 net adjusted line yards metric falls right in the middle of week two's range, but the bigger hurdle to fantasy utility is the unknown weekly nature of the division of usage between these three backs. As we saw in week one, any one, or two, or three of the pass catchers from this offense can pop in any given game. All of Chris Godwin, Mike Evans, Antonio Brown, and the reincarnation of Rob Gronkowski offer sky-high ceilings each and every week. As we also saw in week one, Tom Brady is completely fine taking what an opposing defense gives him, evidenced by the sparse involvement of Mike Evans, who drew shadow coverage from Dallas's only above-average defender. I can't imagine defensive coordinator Dean Pease blitzes Brady heavily in this spot, which would open up the middle of the field and the sidelines, which should mean a lot of zone coverages. Any one of the aforementioned four superstars can beat zone regularly, so consider this a high-ceiling spot across the board, but one that comes with lower-than-perceived floor. Likeliest game flow. The likeliest game flow will be completely driven by the Falcons' ability to put points on the board. What I mean by that is this. Regardless of the score on the scoreboard, we can expect Tom Brady and the Bucks to attack this game largely the same. But the Falcons will need to keep pressure on for their above-average pass rate and pace of play to tickle the ungodly realm. The Falcons have the pieces to put up points in this setup, and I can all but guarantee the field will be light on game stacks for this game. So keep that in mind when building this week. If the Falcons flounder once more, the entire fantasy utility from this game fades as it likely limits the Buccaneers' aerial aggression and instead filters additional work through a three-headed backfield. Titans at Seahawks. Kickoff Sunday, September 19th, 4.25 p.m. Eastern, over under 54. Game Overview by Hilo. Seattle boasts a mismatch in the trenches and is expected to utilize Chris Carson as a true workhorse. The Seattle passing game is likely to go over-owned relative to the likeliest scenario generated volume. Although unlikely, a tributary game flow would involve the Titans jumping out to a large lead early 
in which case nobody will be on a Russell Wilson, DK Metcalf, or Tyler Lockett, Derrick Henry game stack. Not much to like from the Titans in the likeliest scenario outcome. How Tennessee will try to win. The Titans ended Week 1's contest with 36 pass attempts to just 22 rush attempts, but the underlying metrics paint a different picture. In that game, they held a situation-neutral pass rate of only 40%. Problem was the situation was not neutral for very long, as the team was down 24-6 at half. In other words, how Tennessee will try to win games has not changed with the addition of Julio Jones. They are not likely to let Tannehill cook. Okay, that's not a thing. No, they are not going to force feed the ball to their two-star wide receivers. We didn't see played action from the Titans in week one because, well, they couldn't establish a baseline to run play action. Play action at the lowest rate in the league in week one. What I saw out of their performance last week was poor situational play calling and poor execution on both sides of the ball. I saw unblocked edge rushers with a direct path to Tannehill off a bootleg. I saw heavy rush rates on early downs in the first half. I saw predictability and lack of execution on offense, along with miscommunications and poor positionings on defense. That is to be expected early in the year with a new coordinator on each side. But are those areas of the game plan likely to be corrected in the span of one week? Maybe. Unlikely. But maybe. Tennessee left week one with a lowly 3.40 adjusted line yards metric. But a lot of that feels misleading in the sense that they were never able to keep the Cardinals off balance, their bread and butter. Seattle ranked middle of the pack as far as adjusted line yards go on defense in week one, seeding a value of 3.97 to the borderline elite Colts. Expect Seattle to gain focus on doing what they can to eliminate the run after allowing a lowly 3.9 average yards per rush attempt in 2020, due in large part to the growth of nose tackle Puna Ford, whom the team recently signed to a lucrative extension. The truth is likely somewhere in the middle here as far as matchup is concerned, with Tennessee almost assuredly set to improve after their Week 1 fiasco, and Seattle well-equipped to handle it. That said, Seattle allowed the 6th lowest second-level yards to opposing running backs in 2020 at 1.06 per touch, meaning prototypical long Derrick Henry runs are that much more unlikely here. We saw how much this Titans pass game efficiency revolves around play action in Week 1, with the team all but falling flat on their faces in all aspects of their game plan. In another matchup that provides questions with respect to their ability to generate the rhythm on offense required for play action to be successful, it is hard to get overly excited about the pass game as a whole. That said, we know the kind of small sample efficiency both A.J. Brown and Julio Jones possess. The chances of this game turning into a back-and-forth shootout are fairly low, meaning each, plus Ryan Tannehill, should only be utilized in game stacks that tell the story of Seattle jumping out to a large lead early. How Seattle will try to win. Seattle showed us in week one that they intend to snap back to a more balanced offense in 2021. Their 49% situation neutral pass rate from week one was sixth lowest, down from 60% in 2020. Their new offensive coordinator, Shane Waldron, came over from the Rams pass game coordinator position, where the team ranked 26th in the NFL in 2020 in situation neutral pass rate at 56%. The addition of tight end Gerald Everett also predictably showed up in their personnel usage rates, with the team running 12 personnel 38% of the time, the third highest rate in the league behind Atlanta, not really 12 personnel, and New England, obvious via their offseason personnel moves. Their 57% 11 personnel rate was down slightly from their season-long average of 66% in 2020, even with the addition of rookie wide receiver D. Eskridge. So what does all this data tell us? It tells us we should expect a run-balanced offense moving forward. One of the most surprising statistics, 
to me at least, that I came across when researching games this week was the absolute domination of the Seahawks' offensive line against a team that allowed only 3.76 running back yards per carry in 2020. Seattle generated the second highest adjusted line yards in week one at 5.37, second only to the top run-blocking offensive line in 2020, the Browns. The 19 rushes by their running backs averaged 5.47 yards per carry. Again, against the defense that finished fourth in the league in yards allowed per carry to opposing backfields in 2020. That is impressive stuff. Running back Chris Carson saw 19 of the 23 available running back opportunities for the Seahawks in week one, and backup running back Rashad Penny is expected to miss week two. Tennessee, on the other hand, finished week one with the 24th ranked adjusted line yards metric on defense at 4.67, leading to a net adjusted line yards metric of 5.02. For comparison's sake, an over 5.0 net adjusted line yards metric happened about once every week on average in 2020 across the entire NFL. It just happens to be the second-ranked net adjusted line yards metric for Week 2 behind the otherworldly Browns. The Seahawks left Week 1 with two red zone rush attempts and two red zone pass attempts, something that could be a telling statistic after the Rams attempted a whopping 81 running back rush attempts in the red zone last season. For comparison, Josh Jacobs led the league in red zone rush attempts in 2020 at 64. Those same Rams running backs combined for 54 total green zone rush attempts in 2020 with Josh Jacobs again leading the way from an individual player at 35. Will this be a trend or statistical noise moving forward for Seattle? No idea, but I sure as hell am going to be early on it if it turns out to be the new norm. Not much has changed with respect to Seattle's pass game other than a potential dip to weekly expected pass attempts in neutral to positive game scripts. This is still an offense expected to be highly efficient through the air with the trio of Russell Wilson, DK Metcalf, and Tyler Lockett. Metcalf and Lockett both played over 85% of their team's Week 1 snaps, with both Gerald Everett and Will Disley trailing them slightly at 72 and 70% respectively. The matchup is a good one against a team playing with five new starters on the defensive side of the ball, with a new defensive coordinator at the helm. We also know that Seattle will continue attacking the intermediate to deep areas of the field when they do throw, areas the Titans expectedly struggled with in Week 1. Consider all pass catchers, bet on efficiency plays, that are likely to garner increased ownership this week. Likeliest game flow. The likeliest game flow involves the Seahawks winning early on both sides of the ball and controlling the pace and tempo of the game. Chris Carson has room for 20 to 24 running back opportunities in this case and is highly appealing from a leverage and game theoretical standpoint with the main ownership from the Seahawks expected to come from the pass game. It is likely the Texans focus their time and efforts this week on cleaning up the execution errors and lack of dynamic play calling which should keep this game closer for longer than what we saw of this team in Week 1. In all, the field is likely to underestimate the significance of this game's lofty game total, and more specifically, Seattle's lofty team total. Although unlikely, which means it doesn't warrant a full tributaries write-up, if the Titans somehow jump out to a multi-score lead early, this game could turn into one of the week's had-to-have-it games, and nobody will be on a tributary game stack. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Cowboys at Chargers. Kickoff Sunday, September 19th, 425 p.m. Eastern, over under 55 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. Amari Cooper, CeeDee Lamb, and Keenan Allen set up well for additional targets. 
Many will look to Cedric Wilson as a possible salary saver, but I am much more interested in Jalen Guyton from the other side if searching for blow-up potential at a low price and low ownership. Both primary running backs bring massive question marks. Expected usage for Ezekiel Elliott, and seemingly out of nowhere, lack of pass game usage for Austin Eckler. Both tight end stables feature split work and non-bankable volume. How Dallas will try to win. Dallas's overall offensive philosophy remains consistent in 2021 when compared to early 2020, the last time quarterback Dak Prescott was healthy. We should continue to expect an elevated pace of play and elevated pass rates as the norm under offensive coordinator Kellen Moore moving forward. The biggest thing we need to understand about this offense, however, is the fact that Moore is entirely willing and able to turn elevated pass rates into extreme pass rates in negative game scripts, as evidenced by week four of 2020 and week one of 2021. The overall pass rates for Dallas in the first four games of 2020 were 67.7%, which jumped to 76.62% and 76.32% in week one of 2021 and week four of 2020, respectively both games in which Dallas fell behind early. The Cowboys also increased their 12 personnel rates significantly to start the season, running two tight end sets a massive 35% of the time in week one, and 11 personnel only 49% of the time, likely due to offensive line-defensive line mismatches against Tampa Bay, but things don't get any easier this week. When evaluating how the Cowboys are likeliest to try and win here, we must take in the multitude of injuries and suspensions this team has experienced yet again early in the season. Standout offensive lineman Lyle Collins was suspended for six games for failure to appear for a league drug test. Wide receiver Michael Gallup was placed on IR after week one. Defensive end Demarcus Lawrence injured his foot in practice. It is reportedly of the long-term variety. And cornerback Kelvin Joseph and defensive tackle Neville Gallimore are both out with long-term injuries. Running back Ezekiel Elliott is still a top five running back, at least as far as snap rate and running back opportunity are concerned. We saw him flounder last season after Prescott was lost for the year, while the team also dealt with numerous injuries along the offensive line. This season, Lyle Collins will miss the next third of the season, and the Cowboys' defense seemingly got worse, indicating a situation where they should be forced into more aerial aggression over the coming six weeks than they would otherwise like. That said, All-Pro guard Zach Martin returns for Week 2 after missing the season opener on the COVID list. The matchup on the ground for this one is also less than ideal. Opposing defensive tackle Linval Joseph is one of PFF's top-rated run stoppers over the previous three seasons, and the Chargers are fresh off a stifling performance against fellow borderline elite usage running back Antonio Gibson, giving up only 4.17 yards per running back opportunity, 23 carries and 7 targets. In all, this is definitely not a get-right spot for Mr. Elliott. We should see the inflated 12 personnel rates continue into week two after perimeter wide receiver Michael Gallup suffered a calf injury in week one and was subsequently placed on IR. This should spell additional snaps for Cedric Wilson, Noah Brown, and Simi Fehoko, likely in that order. The overall setup for the Cowboys pass game expectation points to the overall setup for the Cowboys pass game expectation points to primarily short to intermediate routes through Amari Cooper, CD Lamb, and the tight ends, Dalton Schultz and Blake Jarwin, as the Chargers look to allow their vaunted pass rush to create organic pressure without the need for elevated blitz rates, allowing their second level to settle into complex zone assignments. Consider both Amari Cooper and CeeDee Lamb favorites to end the week amongst the top five wide receivers in targets. How Los Angeles Will Try to Win Offensive coordinator Joe Lombardi's offense appeared similar to how it did from his time in New Orleans as the quarterback's coach. 
with heavy utilization of the X receiver, Mike Williams, and power run scheme, but carried over the high pace of play from the 2020 team. The most surprising aspect of the week one usage was the zero targets for running back Austin Eckler, who is not best utilized as a power back. That usage contradicts Lombardi's public statements this offseason, which indicated his desire to maximize the talent available, which would be getting the ball to Eckler out of the backfield in space. Finally, a whopping 33 of Herbert's 47 pass attempts in week one flowed through three primary receivers, Keenan Allen, 13, Mike Williams, 12, and Jared Cook, 8. If that usage continues, all three should be considered weekly in what would be a highly concentrated passing attack. The power run game filtered primarily through Austin Eckler, but he only outtouched backup Larry Roundtree III 15-8. Furthermore, all Chargers running backs saw a grand total of one target in the passing game in Week 1, and that went to third stringer Justin Jackson, which absolutely nobody would have predicted. The matchup is a good one on the ground, contrary to last week against the football team, so there is a chance Lombardi dials up more usage for these backs, but a bet on this backfield is exactly that. A bet on usage and scheme changing from week one. The running back snap rate for week one broke down to 58% for Eckler, 27% for Roundtree, and 14% for Jackson. Without the typical usage through the air for Eckler, he is relegated to yardage and touchdown back status and would require the bonus and multiple trips to the end zone for utility. Things get interesting when dissecting this passing attack. Both starting defensive ends will be out for Dallas after Demarcus Lawrence suffered a broken foot in Wednesday's practice. Couple that with a now top-of-the-league pass-blocking offensive line for the Chargers, and Herbert should have all the time in the world to pick the secondary apart. It will be interesting to see how Dallas chooses to deploy cornerback Trayvon Diggs in coverage. He is really the only member of their secondary considered above average in coverage, and is fresh off a game in which he shut down Mike Evans, primarily due to sticky coverage. Either way, the heavy slot snap rate for Keenan Allen, and likely coverage by Anthony Brown when on the perimeter, lead to plus matchups. The tight end snap rates played out as predicted leading into the season in week one, with aging Jared Cook seeing the field for 58% of the team's offensive snaps and physical specimen Donald Parham seeing the field for 51%. That led to eight targets for Cook and only one for Parham, but the usage is suspect at best. Jalen Guyton actually ran the third most routes for the Chargers in week one at 35, only 30 for Jared Cook. He appears entrenched in the wide receiver three role. Rookie Josh Palmer saw only 14 offensive snaps and ran only eight total routes. Finally, if ever there were a matchup for Eckler's targets to increase, this would be it. If they fail to bump in this spot, we might have to accept a low pass game role moving forward. Likeliest game flow. We have an interesting case where we're likely to see the Chargers dictate the actual game flow while the Cowboys dictate the overall pace. What I mean by that is this. Dallas is likeliest to force an up-tempo game through elevated pass rates to the short and intermediate areas of the field, while Los Angeles is likeliest to force varying game flows based on their success on both sides of the ball to start the game. Either way, the ways each are likeliest to attack here remains constant for game scripts that play to a slugfest, highly unlikely, a shootout, and the Chargers taking and holding an early lead. The only game flow that alters how each team are likeliest to attack would be the one in which the Cowboys jump out to a multi-score lead, which is highly unlikely here. This gives us a high confidence scenario for the top plays from this game. 